0: Happy Wednesday, Bingers! And before I introduce you to today's guest, I've got some exciting news. CrimeCon 2021 is happening in person in Austin, Texas. And I'm going to be there along with a lot of the hosts that you've listened to on this very podcast. If you've never been, you have no idea what you're missing out on. CrimeCon is the place where all of your true crime favorites from podcasts, TV, and print all gather together to hang out with you. There are classes, seminars, Q&A panels, live podcasts, and everyone's favorite, Podcast Row, where all of your favorite podcasters hang out for a few hours each day for the sole purpose of meeting listeners. It's awesome, and I hope to see a lot of you there. So, dust off those selfie sticks and join me and damn near every other true crime podcaster June 4th through 6th in Austin, Texas. They even gave me a promo code to share with you that'll save you 10% off your ticket price. So here's what you got to do go to crimecon.com and click register now. Now you're going to see that the tickets are waitlisted. That's just because, with the ever changing restrictions, they just don't know how many people will be able to attend yet. So they're having people get on a waitlist. And then, as they release tickets, they're going to be issued on a first come, first serve basis based on when you join the waitlist. So if you want to go, Join the waitlist now. They're not going to charge your card unless they have a ticket for you. And when you check out, enter my promo code RUFF for 10% off. That's my last name, R-U-F-F, RUFF, for 10% off. Hopefully, I'm going to see a bunch of you there to share some cheap beer and expensive bourbon with me. And now, let me tell you about today's show. I'm joined by a woman who has done it all. She's a writer, a private investigator a TV personality, and now a true crime podcaster. She's the host of the Red Collar Podcast, the extraordinarily talented Catherine Townsend. The Internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next True Crime Binge.
1: I just got a new phone and I don't have, I've got like a, (laughs) I've got this type of plug that doesn't go in. Uh, I just don't have the right adapter. I'm
0: sorry. That's what you went from iPhone to something else to back to iPhone?
1: Never again. Never again. <laughs> it will never happen again. So, I can promise So you.
0: you settled into the iPhone now?
1: I'm back to the iPhone. I had the iPhone originally. And I went to the Android because as a private investigator, I was obsessed with the camera. The Huawei camera has a hundred. It has 50 times zoom. Okay. So I live in lower Manhattan. I can look at the World Trade Center. And like, look in the windows. It's insane. I mean, it's crazy, the technology. And I, I was obsessed with that camera and I couldn't let it go. But <laughs> I, finally, <laughs> I finally realized I need to move back to the iPhone.
0: Right. You can still but, use it for the camera and just use the iPhone for your phone.
1: I know. It's so hard. That it's such, a, I can't tell you. I mean, you know, not that I'm a stalker or weirdo or anything. Um, Anymore <laughs> right. than anyone sure. else says. That's is, what they all say. It really, it's, yeah, I love it. I have to say, I do love it. <laughs>
0: Well, that voice you're hearing, and who doesn't probably realize that we've started the interview, that is Catherine Townsend, the private investigator and host of the Red Collar Podcast. And uh, how are you doing in lower Manhattan today, Catherine?
1: I'm doing really well. I'm, you know, staying sane in 2021. Um, I am riding my electric bike everywhere. Um, I'm wearing a really heavy faux fur coat. And I kind of look like the (laughs) abominable snowman, but I'm just, I'm rocking that look and I'm enjoying it.
0: That's awesome. It, Lower Manhattan's a tough place to be right now, isn't it? Is it still pretty much like complete lockdown down there?
1: It is. Um, they do have outdoor dining, which is where my fur coat comes in and my three pairs of socks. Because I'm, you know, look, I'm being very safe. Um, I've been very safe the whole uh, throughout this whole thing. But for my own sanity, sometimes I do. I will go and sit outdoors at a restaurant um, in my fur coat, earmuffs, and and you know everything else because I want them to stay open. You know, so right, right. Yeah. Do
0: they have the uh, Do they have the bubbles, or is it just like you're just sitting out in the snow?
1: They do, and I've actually uh, we've gone to um, the the igloos a couple of times down on sort of uh-huh. Stone Street, and they've had bingo games and the heated igloos. Um, but mainly, it's just been outdoors, you know, kind of winging it with a really warm heat lamp, and you know, the food gets a little cold, but it's it's our attempt at street dining, and New Yorkers are tough, so that's what we do.
0: Right. That's awesome. So, you're, so you're making it through.
1: Making it through.
0: Hopefully, there's a light at the end of the tunnel with uh, the the vaccine finally rolling out.
1: I hope so. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, hopefully, you know, look, knock on wood, I'm I'm healthy. The people, my, some people in my family have had it, um, but they're healthy, and that's all you can really ask for at this point.
0: Right, right. So, uh, tell us about yourself. I checked out your podcast, and we're going to get into a little bit more of, of the case of uh, the case of the week that we're going to talk about. But the podcast is really well done, and I didn't really. It's new. You just you've only been out for as of the time of us recording this, like a month and a half.
1: That's right. Yes. Um, I did. Uh, I've been an investigative journalist for a long time. And um, I actually started my career. I started working at New York Magazine. And then I moved to London and I wrote a dating column for a while. And um, it's really interesting because I transitioned from that to investigative reporting. And people are always kind of like, that's a weird transition. Um, but any woman who listens to true crime or any man for that matter, will probably know that dating and detective work actually like have a lot in common it's the same skill set in a way a weird way (laughs) so i kind of transitioned to that and then um, i did another investigative podcast called hell and gone um, but that's different that focuses on one case per season and then this one Uh. with audio check i'm so excited about red collar um, because it's a subject that i've been obsessed with for a long time that i think a lot of people don't know that much about i didn't when i a couple years ago uh, it's basically white collar criminals who get violent, and there are a lot more of them than people realize
0: yeah i didn't even i've never even heard the term red collar criminal before I listened to your podcast uh and it makes total sense. can you break down real quick what a what makes someone a white collar criminal and then what makes them a red collar criminal
1: sure so well, I can't take credit red collar uh red collar criminal is something that was invented um it's been it's been used for several years and there's a guy named Frank Perry who was um an attorney and uh, was, I think, an FBI former criminal profiler. And he started using the term um, and he talked about it a lot and others have done research. But basically, a white collar criminal is someone who commits um, a crime for financial gain. So you're thinking of your sort of, uh, you know, your Bernie Madoff type. Um, Mm -hmm. It's basically someone, it's fraud. And when it crosses the line to red collar crime, um, what happens with red collar criminals is that their fraud is about to be uncovered. And that could be they've stolen money from um, an employer and they're about to get caught. Uh, But it can even be something like um, a boyfriend and girlfriend living together. We've had a couple of these and, you know, she's about to find out that he's stolen this money. And so in that in that moment, when they feel like they're backed into a corner, uh, red collar criminals lash out with extreme violence. And again, we often think of white collar crime as like the mild mannered accountant, you know, the person who works at the bank. But actually, I mean. When someone gets confronted with the fact that they've stolen money, I mean they kill and and they often will turn on the people who are closest to them, so friends, family, the business partner they've known for twenty years, um, things like that.
0: Right. So yeah, that I, I found that really interesting. I, I never really, I always just thought of white collar crime as just like you know rich people committing crimes.
1: That well, that's another big myth um, that I've been learning about. So you know, we often think about exactly as you said, we're thinking. Oh, it's someone stealing from a bank or a hedge fund. But actually, so many white collar crimes are committed against, you know, it'll be like, it'll be sort of a boyfriend, girlfriend living together. And maybe he's, you know, taking money out of her bank account. Um, we've had people who um, would forge documents. And, and in the case we're going to talk about today, Chris Porco, he was forging all these bank documents and his parents were figuring out that he's stolen all this money from them. Um, and often they'll be lying to sort of cover their tracks. And it's right in the moment when the lie is about to be uncovered, when uh, their victims are at, you know, in the most danger. And to your point, because a lot of the victims don't associate like uh, financial fraud with murder, they'll, they'll confront the person who's stealing from them. And unfortunately, a lot of times when they confront them, um, only one person walks away from that confrontation. Um, and it's, it's really amazing to me that, you know, we have no problem as a society uh, sort of imagining, like someone who someone walks in a convenience store, they need money, you know. The robbery goes wrong, and they end up shooting the person. And we sort of can grasp that, but we don't think about like someone stealing money from our bank account. We confront them, and they're going to kill us. I mean, it's just not something. I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe we think white collar criminals are less violent, but they're not necessarily less violent.
0: Right. It's like people don't don't recognize the threat, the physical threat that may be connected to the financial threat.
1: Exactly, and it's a very real threat. And I really hope when I when I did uh, some of these cases, in so many of these cases, you'd have people who were, uh, for example, business partners or friends who had gone into business together, and they've known each other for twenty years. And you know, they figure out there's theft happening, and so they decide to confront the person, never thinking, thinking, oh, I'll I'll let them pay it back. Like it's it's not that big a deal. It's not worth killing over. And unfortunately. Someone these sort of narcissistic um, kind of psychopathic personalities don't see it that way. They they're cornered. They're you know they're caught and they lash out. And I mean in one case, um, the McStay family case, um, a guy killed four people, four members of a family over some stolen money, which by the way he'd already stolen. And and what was the guy? You know what was the victim going to do? He's probably going to sue him to get it back. Probably wouldn't get it back. So I think people ask the wrong question. I think they ask. Well, what does the person gain from this murder? And you know, the answer seems to be not very much. But we have to ask, like, what are they going to lose? You know, they're going to lo- they might they, they're going to lose their sort of um, standing in the community. They think they're going to lose their job um, and their money, and they will just they don't take it well.
0: Right. So you're a little bit of your background. Again, you you gave us a little bit of background here that you were an investigative journalist. Uh, you said you're a licensed private investigator. I am. How did you get into this this line of work? I, you know, did you grow up like I want to be a detective, or yes. th- was this something you chose? It, that's the case. All right, expl- tell me your background. How did you get to where you're at?
1: I wanted to be okay. I had three goals. I wanted to be a writer, um, you know, journalist writer. I wanted to uh, I wanted to investigate things, and I wanted to live in Paris at some point. Um, I've done all three of those things, so um, you know, I feel pretty happy nice. with that. Um, I. Uh, I think the mystery, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I was like making up fake cases and I would have these case files and I had a little basset hound that I rolled around on wheels and like would solve, I was like following the neighbors. And I mean, I, I, yeah, I was always into it. <laughs> then I would read Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and things like that. And when I grew up and I started writing uh, feature stories uh, for magazines and things, I, I sort of, I was always interested in interviewing people, finding out what made them tick in any setting, whether it was like a cocktail party or, you know, an investigation, and sort of just just figuring out the story, you know, just digging into it. And that's how I got started in journalism. And then later, um, when I moved, uh, I was living in London working for a newspaper there, and I moved back to California. I wanted to be an investigative journalist, but they're like, you're the dating columnist. Like, what are you talking about? You can't do that. So. Right. <laughs> that was when I got my PI license and it was 3 years, 6000 hours that you have to have and if, and they give you credit if you're if you've worked in law enforcement, like if you've been a cop, which is a question a lot of people have. Um that's why so many former law enforcement people are in private investigation because you get you can sort of transition pretty seamlessly. Right. I could not. I had to work for an investigator for 3 years, um build up my hours, but I did it and it was totally worth it because it helps a lot with these cases.
0: So then eventually you make the transition into being a true crime podcaster. So right. you, you've worked on other projects. How did Red Collar come to be?
1: Well, um, I had had the idea. I was, I'd was I'd i done another podcast. I knew obviously who Ashley was and um, someone who worked with her kind of put us in touch. And then um, also we have the same agent. And so we started talking and it just was really sort of, I had this idea. Um, She seemed to really, you know, audio check was very supportive, and I mean, they've been amazing. They've been totally amazing, Mm -hmm. and it just all came together, and it was so great because it came together even during this sort of crazy time when, um, you know, I didn't have a recording studio. Obviously, I mean, I'm recording in my closet, things like that. Um, But we we made it happen, and I'm really excited because number one, I love it. I find these cases fascinating, Um, and also, I really think that a lot of people like. I just wanna, I want people to know that, that just because someone um, commits fraud, it doesn't mean they're not, they're not violent. You know, I'm not saying right. everyone who steals money is going to kill you. I'm just saying it's not out of the question.
0: Sure. So you've, you've created, it's funny, again, Every almost every podcaster I talk to has the I recorded in my closet story. Everybody, it's, it's consistent <laughs> <laughs> across the board. It, it seems to be the quietest place in the house. Now, now we're on Zoom right now, and I can see. Uh, I assuming in you're in your apartment or house right now. Yes. And there are ten thousand books behind you. Have you read all of those books? Or are they for show?
1: So a lot of those, uh, <laughs> I have read. All I have read most of them. A lot of them belong to my boyfriend, and mm-hmm. uh, he's a huge reader. He he also helps me. Uh, he helped me with the first podcast I did. That's actually kind of how he got the, the second date. I was working on he's a neurosurgeon and I was working on a podcast about uh, I, it was a murder that involved a head injury and I was sort of like, yeah, I don't suppose you'd want to look at this autopsy report would you? And he's like, sure. And then he's like, I've got a plastic skeleton model skeleton in my car. Plastic model spine in my car and I was like, that's a great pickup line. <laughs>
0: you know, right. You know, for either a serial killer setting you up.
1: Well, I you know, it's so funny. When you go out with someone who's a surgeon, the first thing you think as a podcaster is, are you a real doctor? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Really? Like, You're you're not Dr. Death. Are you sure? I mean, yes, I definitely had those thoughts. I verified everything, by the
0: way. You checked all of his credentials, not like a Dirty John situation.
1: Oh, I do that. Listen, I do that for myself and all of my friends. And crazy (laughs) side story, which I don't know if you know. um, So the Dirty John case John Meehan, my girlfriend, okay, this is going back when I was first getting my PI license, like almost 10 years ago. My girlfriend Mm -hmm. went out with him. And the craziest part of that story is, yes, she went out with him. We had dinner all together at the Chateau Marmont um, in Los Angeles. And I was saying the whole night to my then boyfriend, I was like, that guy's not a real doctor. There's something wrong with this guy. I actually followed him home. It's, ooh, sorry. Crazy story. But yeah, when he ended up getting busted for all that. I remember calling her and just, she was like screaming. She's at the dentist's office. And because it was just so, I mean, that's a red collar crime, really. That's a, you know, he was, this guy was committing fraud. He had a lot of rage. And eventually it, you know, it came out on someone and, you know, really scary guy. Very scary guy.
0: Yeah. And so you, so to be clear, what you're saying is you went on a double date with Dirty John Meehan.
1: Correct. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely it was did- a triple date there were six of us there <laughs> and i'll tell you he was he he did something that i thought was strange i don't know if you've ever seen the movie catch me if you can
0: yes i have
1: you know leonardo dicaprio is the con man and at one point he pretends to be a doctor right and there's this scene where he's sort of he's talking about all these he, he's kind of throwing around these medical terms and then he just keeps saying i concur and there was this moment in the dinner. Right. <laughs> um, First of all, he showed up in the scrubs, okay. And as someone who not only has gone out with a doctor, but is so many members of my family work in medicine—they're either nurses or doctors—that's just not something that you do. You don't wear scrubs, and and they're kind of (laughs) worn on the bottom. That's weird. And then he started talking about like he's supposedly an anesthesiologist, and he knew a lot about. But he was just talking way too much about it. Doctors don't talk about like the pressure of gas in their operation at dinner. It's it's weird, and that's what first made me kind of. You know, think it was strange.
0: How uh, how long did your friend date John Meehan, or was that a one time thing?
1: No, she went out with him for like a month, and in that time, he was telling her, um, you know, he was trying to get really serious with her. And then I ended up finding his criminal record, showing it to her, so she broke up with him. And um, I actually wrote an article about this a while back. She broke up with him, and then it wasn't. I think it was like a few months later he started dating Deborah. So. And it was a horrible feeling at the time, because I remember thinking, this guy is like a wrong one, and he's going to do something bad to someone, but but there's nothing you can do. Do you know what I mean? He hadn't really stolen anything right. from her. There was just nowhere to go with it.
0: God, that's so crazy. That like, What crazy. a small world. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, that's an interesting enough case, but we have another case <laughs> to talk about. Your episode was titled The Preppy Axe Murderer. Yes. Uh, very clever, by the way, because it's, it's very uh, on point and accurate. And so this is this is a story of a young man, Chris Porco, who ends up m- murdering his father and almost murdering his mother. Why don't you give us the kind of the basic breakdown of the case? And then we'll start because I because I have questions.
1: Sure. Um. So, you know, November 2004, small town, Del Mar, New York. Um. The Porcos, this very middle class, um, just seemingly normal family lived on a quiet street. And there is an there's an attack one night. Someone comes into the house, kills Peter, the father, with an axe and hits the mother. I mean, so many times that she lost an eye. It was really it was really horrific. Um, But she lived. She did survive. But she unfortunately, which would be a big question to debate later, didn't really said later she didn't really remember anything about the time of the attack. What was so horrific about this? um, I mean, other than the fact that it was an axe murder was you know, the father, uh, had been hit with the ax. He managed to, I guess there was some part of his brain still kind of taking him through, um, you know, I guess our, our, you know, basically his, he was, he was still able to get up kind of on autopilot. That's how it was described to me. Um, go downstairs. He had blood on the kitchen. Ta- it looked like he had been trying to make a sandwich, trying to shave in the mirror, in the bathroom sort of he he was just completely unaware of what had happened to him and was going about his day and then that co- is, you know he, it's horrific
0: yeah that is that obviously was one of my questions i was listening to this and i was i wanted to make sure i understood that right that he's been hit multiple times with a freaking axe in the head and he's just wandering through the house doing normal day-to-day stuff as he's bleeding until he finally dies like that's that's
1: yes. horrific
0: and insane
1: there's a part of your brain, and it was explained in forensic files really well. I don't want to get it wrong, but there's basically there's a part of your brain that controls sort of automatic responses, things that we do, you know, every day. And, um, and that part of his brain was still kind of working. And he, you know, obviously he's been horribly wounded and he's bleeding to death, but he doesn't quite realize it. Um, it does seem like at some point he's, he realized he was in trouble because there was blood on the phone. And he got, he picked up the, I believe the landline, tried to dial 911, but the phone lines had been cut. And when detectives got to the scene, immediately they're looking around thinking, you know, this might have been an inside job because uh, the alarm panel had been disabled. Um, There was the fact that the murder weapon, the axe, had come from inside the garage. The dog had been put into the basement and the dog was fine. Um, So, you know, they're thinking, could this have been some, you know, could this have been someone who was connected to the house? And the, and at the time, um, they had two sons, and the older son was in the military somewhere off, and the younger son, Chris, was uh, at college. And so um, they look into the case more closely, and they start to figure out that um, Chris had actually been stealing money um, from. He'd been lying to his parents for quite some time. He'd been telling his friends at school that he was this wealthy. He had wealthy parents. They owned all this property. Um, he had all this money, he always paid for things. So he's kind of living this double life. He's telling his friends that. Meanwhile, um, he is stealing money from his parents and lying about these loans he's got, and he's faking, he's sort of forging documents. And basically, there are all these emails between his parents and him. It was coming to a head. His parents were figuring out that he'd been lying and stealing the money. They were confronting him about it, and they were threatening to go to the police. And that's when they were murdered.
0: Yeah, and so that is, you know, that that's what makes up the definition of this red-collar crime, right? Where he was stealing money from them, committing fraud. And then and then he gets confronted where he's being exposed. And then, and I guess I was going to say allegedly, but I mean, he was convicted. So, so he then murders his parents. But then the mom is the one that blows me away. So there's a detective that says mom at the time while she's laying there horribly wounded with ax wounds to the head indicates to them by nodding that it was Chris who was the one that did this. Right. She goes into a coma.
1: The story with that was the detective who worked the case, it's a small town, right? So he knew he kind of knew the family um, and uh, the father worked for a local judge. I can't remember. He he did something in the legal community. So basically, um, the detective knew the family and there had also been a couple of other break-ins at the home that they had suspected Chris, you know, had committed. And what he was doing was doing things like stealing. He he burglarized his parents, and then he sold the laptop, sold the stuff on eBay later. But it was one of those things where they couldn't quite prove it. You know, they just, they have their suspicions. They kind of, nothing ever happens. So, uh, you know, the detective is a little bit suspicious. And he says to the mother, as she's sort of lying there bleeding, um, was it the older brother? And she shook her head. and, And according to the detective, he said, was it Chris? And she nodded. So, um later on, that became this big controversy, because, you know, look, no one can say for sure that she did she not or not. Um, the detective was there, he believes that she did. Later on, when she came out of her coma, she had obviously had all these horrific injuries. She says she doesn't remember, and she ended up standing by Chris, she paid for his lawyer, she went with him to the trial, and it was really you know of, of everyone in the case, I just I think everyone feels so horrible for her because whatever the reality of that how terrible is that to have to know that your son might have done that to you
0: yeah i mean because she paid what a quarter million dollars to bail him out
1: yeah she bailed him out she got him a lawyer she stuck by him the whole time she actually um sort of took on the press and said you know they need to be out there finding the real killer why are they focusing on him she she completely backed him and i believe she defends him to this day and completely backs him
0: from what i read that's that's the case and she i mean and she's horribly i mean she lost an eye, part of her skull, uh, and then, of course, obviously lost her husband through all that. And she's just convinced that it wasn't him. Can you talk a little bit about the case against uh, Chris and and why police believe that it was him?
1: The case against him, um, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was a weird case because again, um, it's always difficult when you have someone who you suspect kills someone in the home where where they've been living obviously his DNA is everywhere, but that's because he lived there. So it's not as easy as say someone, you know, there's foreign DNA and you can tie it to someone. So they really have to focus hard on the motive. And the detectives in this case, they, you know, look, they made some mistakes and, and Frank Perry, this, you know, who's research red collar crime. The reason that I talk about this case a lot is because he chose this case as one of the sort of um, ones he used to illustrate red collar crime because, all right, police bring Chris in. And at this point, they think that he might have done this. What they did was something that we're taught in um, as PIs and detectives to do. They interrogated him um, in a way that was it was sort of they were trying to get an emotional response from him. They're basically saying, we know you did it. You killed your parents. Um, you know, look at this. Look at these pictures. Look at the damage. Um, and they're trying to get an emotional response from him. He's not giving it. He's being very, and that's why I play part of the interrogation on the podcast. You can hear him just being stone cold. He's like, nope, didn't happen. You know, and in the end of the interview, it actually, you know, he ends up getting more information from the detectives than they do from him. So, uh, you know, red collar experts say this is why in a case like this, knowing how to interrogate these guys is so crucial. You need to know how to interrogate someone who might have no conscience, might have no emotional response to what you're saying. And also you've got to be really, it's almost, instead of asking the yes or no questions, you've got to ask them, just, just keep them talking. They're narcissists. They want to talk about themselves, let them keep talking. And eventually you'll trip them up on the details. That's sort of the idea. So what they had on him, they had, he had an alibi, supposedly he was at school the night before. And I think it's about, it's a couple hours away. But they were able to figure out that he was not in his room that night. He had slept on, um, he said he'd been sleeping. He said he'd given up his room to someone in his fraternity who was visiting and that he was sleeping in the common area. Um, and I think, you know, look, he obviously chose that night. He gave his room up maybe on purpose so that he would, you know, have this story about being in the common room. Um, but what ended up happening was no one could remember him being in the common room. Um, and then there was also the question of, his uh his car how he'd gotten to the scene a neighbor remembered he had this bright yellow jeep which was like he was you know so proud of a neighbor said they'd seen the jeep and there was also surveillance footage of a jeep that looked like his going through you know the easy pass lanes so they had evidence and they and but it wasn't but it wasn't a slam dunk you know there was no um there was no dna there in his car there was no, um, they couldn't tie, you know, they, they just couldn't make the case against there was no blood anywhere. They didn't find blood on his clothes or in his car. Um, they they did say though that he had worked for a vet. And because he had worked for the vet, he like knew to put gloves on. He he basically knew how to clean some clean things really well and leave no trace behind.
0: What's interesting is you when you're talking about the interrogation, um that ends up getting thrown out in court. Because evidently he had invoked his right to an attorney and the police continued to question him afterwards. So that got thrown out. It's almost amazing that he got convicted because then he has so the surviving. Did did his mother testify? She did, right? She testified at the trial.
1: His mother testified. um, His mother testified for him and said that she didn't remember anything. So, yeah, I mean, and that was very, that had to be very powerful uh, for the jury um, to, you know, hear that his mom, you know, completely, and she showed up. And, and there is something powerful too about, you know, you, you see her showing up with him every day, holding, you know, holding his arm, supporting him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think in the end, it came down. There were, there were also skin cells on a ticket from um, a toll booth. And they were able to match the skin cells to him. And I do think that that was helpful in establishing the timeline. But again, it wasn't a slam dunk. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a perfect... There are, two, there are a couple of different types of DNA. And this one had... Um, I don't want to get it wrong. Forensic files explained it better. It had a certain number of markers, but it wasn't as definitive as, I think, mitochondrial DNA, the other type. So
0: No, this was mitochondrial, which is oh, it like was mitochondrial, wasn't yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, that's right. Okay.
0: They couldn't narrow it down as much as they could with nuclear DNA
1: exactly it's not an exact match it sort of narrows it down to something like two percent of the population so right it's more like to rule people out rather than to say that's a definitive person so yeah they, they didn't they had a timeline they had you know i think it really came down to the motive and that's why it was so important um to illustrate that he had been stealing from his parents He'd been lying to his parents. I think the emails were the most important evidence because you have these emails that are getting more and more angry and confrontational between Chris and his parents. And I really feel like that was the, that was the nail in the coffin for him.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would have hate to have been on that jury because you're dealing with what's presented. I mean, the, like you said, the motive is very obvious. You see it and you can see his manipulative behavior through those emails back and forth with his dad. But then you got the other victim you know, sitting there holding his hand and getting on the stand and testifying for him. That had to have been tough, but they did end up convicting. But one question I wanted to ask is, he was convicted of, in the the way it made it sound, unless I misunderstood the podcast, that he was only ever charged with and convicted of second-degree murder. Uh, Why was it second-degree and not first-degree?
1: So this is what I think. And this is something that comes up. It comes up so much that I'm self-conscious. I'm like, I say this in every podcast, but, but it's for a reason. A lot of the time, um, people get very confused. They think that because it's an extremely violent crime scene, um, you know, that he, the father was hit over a dozen times, the mother, you know, it was, it was vicious. It was a horrific crime scene. They think that that means it was a crime of passion. And that happens in all the time. Actually, it's not at all. Red collar crimes in general are not crimes of passion. Now, it may be that in that moment, sometimes, you know, you don't pick the time when one person confronts the other. So, so it might be, you know, on the spur of the moment in the sense that you don't pick the moment, but this was something that was planned, you know, in their mind, they know that like, it's coming to the point of no return. And, you know, especially in this case, he planned this whole thing. I mean, he, I believe, you know, asked the, uh, the guy, he told the guy he could have his room that night. He, um, you know, made sure to get his probably because there was no DNA, his veterinary equipment, gloves, all that stuff. He went in there and he took the axe and he chose the axe, I believe, because there were some allegations that there was a, a relative of the families who had been, I think, his nickname it was like Frankie the Fireman Porco, um, who was you know involved with the mob, and so maybe he was trying to. Uh, the prosecution suggested perhaps he was trying to make it look like a mob hit of some kind mm-hmm. because um peter porco dealt you know in the legal realm so yeah it, I, I believe that's why i think that the jury was going to find it hard to um, because of the crime scene and what we've all learned from watching csi all these years we think that anything really violent is going to be a crime of passion and it's hard for people to imagine that someone could premeditate it especially over such a relatively small amount of money i mean Yes, it was forty thousand dollars or more, but it was like, but but in the scheme of things, is that worth killing your parents over? Most people would say, Absolutely not. Can't even imagine, you know, that could happen, especially for such a nice, sweet looking, college educated young man. But, you know, that's how red car crimes work.
0: Yeah, that's it's it it blows my mind because what you're saying is exactly you know, obviously if it was proven to be a premeditated murder, then it would be a uh, which this clearly was regardless of, of, you know, if it's him. But do you know if they, did they offer a first degree and give the jury the option to convict of second? Or did they only charge him with second degree murder?
1: I don't know um, for sure. But I think that they made the decision. I I think, you know, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, you see a lot of these cases. I'm sure that they thought, whatever the, you know, the circumstances, that's what they, like, that's, that's probably what they could get. Um, cause you never want, if they'd gone for first degree and then hadn't gotten right. it, he could have walked away. Right. So I'm sure that they went for what they thought they could get.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, when I heard that they had charged him with second degree, I thought, oh, well, he must've taken a plea deal. And then I heard that, no, he went to trial and he was convicted of that and the attempted murder of his mom. It, one of the audio clips that you played on the podcast when, is when he made the call Saying that someone had, you know, some newspaper had told him his parents were dead. Yeah, and was calling the police to see what's going on. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Listen, like, did anybody? Of course, by then I yeah. think the police already did suspect him, but it's like, this is the weirdest phone call I've ever heard in my life. It was so, and it was like you could you could almost hear him like tripping up, like where he almost would like give a detail he shouldn't know, and then be like, oh well, I I mean I don't know how they were killed. So ah, mm-hmm. that was such a creepy phone call.
1: It was so creepy. And it was very, It you know, it's overused in the podcast and in the true crime world. But it is when you say chilling, your hairs stand up. They really do. It's like he sounds like he's ordering food. It's it's like, you know, he's like, hey, um, yeah, I heard my parents might have been murdered. I mean, it's just there's zero emotion. There's zero anything. And, you know, and, you, and, and I'm not, you know, again, I mean, I'm not writing. I, I think a lot of times People judge everyone's reaction. People handle things differently, but it was just he had this absolute lack of emotion throughout you know, talking to the police throughout all of it. Um, this very flat of you know, just attitude. And then what was also really creepy is the fact that he was asking about his mother, right? And of course, at the time you're thinking, oh, it's concern, but he's I think you know, many people believe he was asking about his mother because he wanted to know when she was gonna die, if she was dead yet, if she could possibly survive, you know. Which is also very creepy.
0: Yeah, and that was that was the, all those little, you, you know, he never did trip up, but you could hear him almost like, you know, and, and he was like very clearly stating things like, I don't know if my mother is alive. So is that where, you know, it was just very, very strange. Um, but the, the podcast was put together brilliantly. The sound design is fantastic. I love the way you mix in in your voice. You have an amazing podcast voice. Uh, I, I was, really enjoyed it. I feel like there's like, it's almost like this New York and maybe a little bit of Southern in there. Are you from the South or oh, yeah. was I imagining? Things? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I'm from Arkansas and uh, <laughs> I haven't lived there in a long time, but yes, it's in there. It comes out more like when I'm really passionate about something um, or when I'm drinking or when, you know, d- different times, <laughs> depending on who I'm talking to. I also spent a lot of time there recording another podcast investigating a murder there about a year and a half ago. And by the end of it, I was like, what's going on, y'all? You know, just it's right, <laughs> it's, it's right back there. So, yeah. You
0: know, it was, it was hilarious, especially because you just said that you're very passionate about it or that you're drinking when it comes out. Because um, when I was listening through like the, the bulk of the podcast, like I said, you can hear that little, like you, you have a great, great voice. And I like that mix of it. And then the ads come. And when you read the ads, you sound very Arkansas during the ads. So, my question to you is, are you really that passionate? about best fiends or were you drunk when you recorded your ads <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's see no just kidding um well uh no i think it look it just depends on i might have just had a conversation with my dad when i recorded that or something you know what i mean i'm not like i don't i don't consciously right. think I, I really don't consciously think about it at all um i know that it comes out more sometimes and also um i know that also a bad tendency that I have is that I talk too fast. And I know it. People have told me my whole life. I can't really help it. I do try very hard to slow it down. But when I try to slow it down, I feel like I'm talking. It's really weird. I feel like it's (laughs) unnaturally slow. And it's my mom's like, no, people can just understand you now. You need to slow down. Um, (laughs) It's a challenge. I'm trying.
0: Well, I think you're a brilliant speaker. And it's a brilliant podcast. The podcast is called Red Collar and our guest name is Catherine Townsend. And thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us. And all of you listeners, go check out Red Collar, could be your next true crime binge.
1: Thank you so much.